right. Love hey, Talk so Radio. Good evening, good evening, audience. Good evening. Um, we are talking with Thaddeus Howes. Good evening, Thaddeus. Good evening. Good How evening. are you doing? All right. Pretty good, pretty good. I want to do a, a brief intro um, to you. You're a science fiction and fantasy writer, um, technology consultant, polymath. Um, you call yourself an iconoclast, right? And yes, a fancy word for troublemaker. Right, 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 right. Um, and you've had a ex- long, extensive career in information technology, um, higher education, um, and you are all over the web. Uh, I was just looking at your Hub City Blues uh, website, and, of course, you have links to um, your other stories, and you have a novel that's available on Amazon called Hayward's Reach. Is that correct? Uh, not technically a novel. It's a collection. It's a oh, series right. of short stories that tell a greater meta story. So it's not okay. a novel, but it's a collection. It's kind of how I look okay. at it right now. And I suspect I'll be writing a lot of things in that fashion, even if I go back to writing novels in the future. Hmm. I like the meta yeah, story. Right, right. I guess you could say Future World, Walter Mosley's um, collection. I mean, it's short stories, but it, it tells a larger story in, in a way, in its own way, that right. kind of operates. Is that is that how how it works? In, in the yes, that's exactly world? it. That each story is individual, but they're part of a larger collection of stories that ultimately are telling a larger tale. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so what I'd like to do uh, before we Get started on Hayward's Reach because um, I do. I, I just ordered it, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I don't have it yet, but I, I ordered it. But I've had a chance to read uh, some of your other stuff. And one particular collection I wanted to start with is, of course, um, Hub City Blues. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Hub City Blues? Uh, Hub City Blues was a series of ideas I had. Uh, I'm a science guy, so I spent a lot of time thinking about science. I'm not a scientist, but I could have been one or should have been one or, I don't know, maybe I just like science more than I like anything else. I went to school for science and I study science, so even though I'm not a scientist, I could be one. And so when I started thinking about Hub City, it came around because of some questions I had about uh, the levels of technology that we have today. I, I challenged myself to think about a world where we did not have megacorporations blocking the development of technology. What might that world look like if we were actually making the technologies we should so that, right. you know, there was no death of the electric car in the 1970s? Uh, instead of the death of the electric car, we embraced the electric car and we started making them like crazy. And we advanced the technology of solar cells and we advanced uh, the technology of nanotech. And we did all these things and created these new ideas. And in Hub City, they did some of those ideas. But the forces that were around to, you know, promote oil and gas and those things that are not uh, environmentally friendly were also around. And so the two struggled for a long time until the world basically fought, started fighting itself and bringing itself to its, its demise. So I, I visualize the United States that has, uh, not, it is not so united any longer and uh, the rest of the world fighting over peak oil. Uh, or the, now the end, the end of oil, because the year is mm-hmm. close to 2100. We are now fighting over the end of oil. We're fighting over polluted skies. We have superstorms. We have uh, inclement weather. We have rising sea levels. We have all the horrible things that we're told that we're going to have today, except that in Hub City they're already happening. But unlike in a lot of dystopian futures, the people are still hopeful, at least some of the people. The people living in Hub City and places like it are still hopeful that they can turn it around. So they have uh, outlawed advertising. They've uh, outlawed making people pay for energy. People, the only thing people have to pay for is food, and technically they don't have to pay for that if they work for it. So nobody is right. held to a job they don't like. No one's doing a job they don't like. Everybody in Hub City gets to do a job they like. They get to choose that job. They get to decide 
what that job, what about that job they want to do? Now, yes, there are some engines inside of Hub City that require people to participate in work they do not like or work that is dangerous because there's less people available and there's more skills that need to be learned. So people are multitasking, triple tasking, but people are learning. No one's sitting on the sidelines looking for work or begging for a job. Everybody works. Everybody. It doesn't matter if you're an adult, old age, if you're a kid, everybody participates in the development of the society. Art is what we do in Hub City. Everyone's an artist. That's how we treat every job as an art. I was just about to ask the question, you know, where do do artists fit in? Everything is art. So, you know, if if you make, for example, one of the heroes, again, Shishio, and Chisho is a chef. He he runs a restaurant with his uncle. And they are food artists, but they hire other kinds of artists to maintain their their uh their web presence, not advertising, it's a presence. They don't push it. You can find them by looking for them. Um we have uh police is a job but it's really the art of talking to people. So while the police do arrest folk, they don't usually try to. Their mission is to be civil and provide support and services and education and, and helping people, find, like young people in particular, find themselves. Because young people, they're the ones that suffer the most in Hub City because it is basically a fortress. And they don't do well in fortresses, so they tend to be wanting to go outside the city. So they are part of an expeditionary service to go out into the world and find people, meet people, bring people back to Hub City, help them if they don't want to come back. Um, so young people are emissaries and, and ambassadors to Hub City. So everybody has a job, and it's a challenging job, and it's a dangerous place, and there's all a whole bunch of forces arrayed against it. So it's, it's dystopian with hope. I know that's a weird thing to say, but that's what it is. Yeah, I, I've, I've noticed that a lot of the, the major cities in, in many of your stories, the cities that we're, we're familiar with now, um, end up being destroyed or somehow end up losing their <laughs> losing their appeal. New York City, in particular, um, uh, seems to be a uh, seems to be a place. It seems to be a theme with a lot of um, a lot of uh, science fiction writers. They tend to look at places like Los Angeles, New York, Detroit, Chicago, London um, as becoming these. Uh, okay. Part of the reason we do that is because a lot of us come from those places. I've lived in New York. I grew up in New York. I have traveled around the world. I have traveled to London. I've traveled to all those major cities. So if I blow them up, it's out of love. It's out of love of them. I know it's a weird statement, but just take my word for it. I blow them up because they mean something to people. And a lot of times people don't take something seriously unless there's something at stake. If I blew up Podunk, Idaho, the people of Podunk, Idaho might be upset. But nobody else would be. But if you blow up New York, everybody's like, oh, my God, you blew up New York. How could you do that? That's that's where they have food and the stock exchange and the cosmopolitan people. And it's been around for 200 years. They care about that. But, you know, if you look at disaster books and disaster novels, usually the end of the world requires that the sea levels rise or tidal waves happen. And guess where all those major cities are? They're on the ocean. And we all know the ocean is a cruel mistress. She loves you today and kills you tomorrow. Right. And, and of course, you know, if it's not man-made disasters, then it's nature, uh, nature rebelling. Um, I noticed in one of your other collections you have a, you have something where the trees themselves are, uh, you know, are reacting and they're and they're destroying uh, humanity. Um, well, you know. yeah, that's that's another. <laughs> oh, that's that's a straight up ecotastrophe. Uh, that is, uh, it's an alien invasion without spaceships. I, I, I tease people because I say it's an alien invasion without ships, ray guns, or even aliens. It's an alien right. invasion of. In, uh, of of a biological nature. These plants come to Earth. They're taking over the Earth. They're simply outperforming our ecosystem. They're eating our right. ecosystem. But we don't know why they're right. eating it. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know what their uh, goal is. And we have yet to meet an alien. So we don't know if it's the plants themselves are an alien, and, and this is just a biological event where, you know, like a, you know, a part of this came about because I have some plants out in the front of my house, these t- two giant bushes. And a few years ago, they got infested with some weird scale, and I've never been able to get rid of it. And I've tried everything. 
at what point do you decide it's impossible to destroy something and you have to get rid of it? You just have to throw the whole thing away. So when I started thinking about that, I said, well, what if there was an invasive species that came from space, landed on Earth, and kind of like in the day of the Triffids, where they come to Earth and they take over the Earth, and, it, well, in the day of the Triffids, we win. So far, right. uh, in the tales of the New Earth, we're not only not winning, but we're now fighting amongst each other, because the world has become such a bad place that human nature is reasserting itself. We stopped fighting the enemy because the enemy's kicking our butt, now we're just fighting each other for maybe a, a place that we can uh, make a last stand and call our own. And I think that's really the story um, in Tales of the New Earth. It's not about the alien invasion so much in that it's about how we respond to cataclysmic crisis. Do we get better or do we just revert to type? Wow. Wow. That, that almost sounds like a screw fight solution. Um, and that that was a story that came out in the 70s. Um, Masters of Horror did, did some version of it. But it also makes me think of the subtitle for your website, The Future is Unsustainable. What does that yeah. mean? Well, that's part of Hub City. Hub City, the, the concept of Hub City is uh, the future as we know it today is unsustainable. There are too many people, too few resources, too much greed, the things that we need the most of, we don't have. The thing we need the most of is goodwill. We don't have that. We don't have any goodwill. Human beings are not bursting with goodwill. They are simply sitting around trying to figure out, how can I get more for less? How little do I have to pay these people before they will come to work for me? How can I exploit you, country X, from country Y, and maximize my profit margins and give you as little of whatever it is that we're selling in this case, whatever the product is, and money, as possible. This is not a society looking to help its fellow man. This is a society looking to exploit its fellow man. And not ashamed to admit it, because let's face it, Gordon Gecko said it. Greed is good, unless right. someone's using you. And it's not so good. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so the is unsustainable. In my mind, we can't live like this forever. So Hub City's uh, tagline is the future is unsustainable because in Hub City we have gotten rid of the things that people used to control people. If you live in Hub City, you don't have to worry about electricity. The city is a self-powered dynamo. It will always generate city rain, shine, sleet, snow. It will always make electricity. It's got any number of ways to do it. It's already temperature controlled, so no matter how hot it is outside, Go underground where two-thirds of the city is, and it's temperature controlled. Always 68 to 72 degrees. Never hotter, never colder. So people don't have to worry that they're going to be without a place to live or be without resources because the city itself will always take care of that. The city provides electricity. It provides heat. It provides water. It is an environment that as long as you're working in it and living in it, all you need to worry about is making your food. And the city is built around making food in any number of ways. Fish underground, uh, plants above ground, underground growing systems, LED lighting systems. I built everything. Every kind of strange, weird technology I've ever seen in any science fiction book or any kind of real science. A lot of this is real science. A lot of this I didn't, have to, I didn't even make it up. A lot of it's real science at, at the experimental stage today. But if you add 100 years to it, what should it look like? It should look awesome. So I built a lot of those current sciences into future Sciences that will be working in Hub City and other cities in the, on the on the planet like it, but Hub City isn't wow. safe. And you, and you did there was a short story that you that you did that I read a while back. I don't remember the title of it, where you literally end up being burdened with the weight of your wealth, and that at some point you figured out that perhaps wealth is not such a such a good thing because the burden. It's called the burden of wealth. Uh, it was just a short story talking about the idea of a plutocratic society that wants to join uh, a, gov a galactic government called the Hegemony. Uh, that's from another series of books called Insurrection that I'm writing. So this society comes and tells people, we're ready to join the Hegemony. We think we have something to offer you. We have financial technologies that will make your lives great. 
But the hegemony is not built around financial technologies. The hegemony is built around real merit. It's built around people providing services to each other, being of service to each other. At the point in the story where the hegemony is being talked about, it's after the series that I'm writing, and so the, the galaxy is more or less at peace, more or less. So the hegemony did not want this trade. They said, you guys aren't ready yet. Stay on your planet or, you know, do what you do. Just You don't have to join us. You can trade with us. You can interact, but they don't want to do that. They want to be a member of the hegemony. So the hegemony says, well, look, we don't do what you're doing. We don't take slaves. We don't mass-produce society. We don't mistreat people. So if you're going to join us, you have to get rid of that. So these people decided they would do what our people do. Oh, we're not rich. It's in a shell company. It's in a foreign bank. It's wherever. And so the hegemony says, okay, fine. We got it. So they build a system of gravity manipulators, and they basically give everyone on the planet access to the infranet that they use. That Basically, it gives free knowledge to anyone that can access it. It also acts as a relay system for a gravity web. So right. if you're rich, the weight of your wealth will be added to your gravitational profile because the hegemony right. frowns on excess wealth to the extent point where you exceed good taste and the hegemony has a standard and i don't know what it is because they're aliens i just work here but you'll know if you fall down and can't get up you're too rich that's not to say you can't be rich but what they said was if you sat around and tried to trick us by making machines and making ideas and making false companies that would make it look like you weren't rich we're not that stupid we're an advanced civilization we recognize what you're doing and you have a few. You have a month to fix this, and they didn't choose to do that. So a whole bunch of the hegemon, a whole bunch of these people, they just dropped dead, crushed under their weight of their wealth. And what the civilization learned was, wealth is okay. People can be wealthy, and you know the wealthy citizens of their planet because they're a little slower and they have a little bent back, and they're you know they're graceful trying to get through life. But they recognize that for their civilization to be really successful, it has to be bringing dignity to everybody, not just the wealthy. So the wealthy citizens of the world, they, they're a little slower. They're a little more dignified because if they fall down, they might not be able to get up under their wealth. But at least they didn't do like the first generation of Plutarchs did and fall down, crushed to death by their greed. <laughs> and there, yeah, it's an allegory. Yeah, it's a, it's a very much in-your-face allegory. No, I'm not a socialist. I just think that there's a point where you just make so much money that it's just ridiculous. What do you need with $100 billion? Really? Yeah, kind of sounds like a a certain um, presidential candidate. Who, who, you know what? I'm not talking about Barack Obama. I'm not trying to be a socialist. I'm not saying people can't make money. I'm not saying no, I'm not people can't make money. I'm the first one to tell you, bro. I love to see people making money. I love it. I do too. I, I mean, I don't. You know, being successful, um, you know, uh, enjoying the fruits of your labor. Nothing wrong with it. Um, I, I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't see anything wrong with, you know, in, you know enjoying a nice car or enjoying a nice coat or, or anything like that. Um, you know, I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't see anything wrong with having a, a gourmet meal or anything like that. It's just that when it becomes so out of balance, um, when it becomes a point to where people who don't have certain amounts of money don't have access to health care, don't have access to education, don't have access to full humanity or even the right to vote. Uh, actually, what I was referring to was the, uh, the uh, it was some kind of fundraising uh, reception that was being held by, by uh, uh, the guy who owns Revlon. And I don't remember his name, but um, apparently his, the guests who were all supporting this Oh, you're talking about the Mitt Romney, the poor don't understand debacle. I may, yes. Yes, that, I wrote a story was, about that today. Was, that was really, really, it was surreal. And obscene I is the word you're looking for. Say with me, obscene. It was obscene and disgusting. So wait, just to show it you how obscene it was? <laughs> so it's pornographic. <laughs> we just got, we were talking about porn. There's different That's types right. of porn. That's right. It's it's money porn. I'm so rich. I'm so rich. Right. How rich are you? Well, I'm so rich that my money has money to take care of. Who needs this? So just to show you how bad it was, for two hours today, 
people on the Internet got together and they talked about this particular meme. Uh, it was called what, what Was Said at a Mitt Romney Fundraiser. Did you see any of that? No, I was, I was busy grading. I was busy grading. Oh, no, see, okay, so now just to show you, it irked me so much. I was working. <laughs> oh, no, 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 but hold on now. I decided I would save those things. I saved uh, probably two hours of this conversation in a program You're called Storify because Ooh. Ooh. some of these things were so funny I could not help myself. So I'm going I'm to help you out by logging in and show you just how crazy some of these people were because oh I think God. I fell out laughing at some of the things people wrote. So just to show you, okay, so it was overheard at a Romney fundraiser, satire, we hope. I said, this meme started because of an article over at Think Progress where a Romney donor decided to reveal her inner feelings on the lower-income people. So for about two hours, people on Twitter decided to share what other wisdom they believe might be released when the elite congregate. So the initial statement that the woman made was, I don't think the common person is getting it. She said it from the passenger seat of a Range Rover stamped with East Hampton Beach permits. No one understands why Obama's hurting them. We've got the message, she added, but my college kid, the babysitters, the nail ladies, everybody who's got the right to vote, they don't understand what's going on. I just think if you're lower income, one, you're not as educated, two, they just don't understand how it works. They don't understand how the systems work. They don't understand the impact. That's what she said. So hold on now. That was a mouthful right there, but let me let me go a little further. It says and so without further ado, let's share the wisdom of the insanely, inanely rich and famous. No names were mentioned to protect the unscrupulous unless they really deserved it. Now, just a quote, so I give you the first tweet, which was started this, says, well, if you're lower income, you're not as educated. You just don't know how the system works. This was actually overheard at a Romney fundraiser. So someone wrote back, um, he says, uh, your son-in-law was laid off at one of my companies? What a shame. He can always follow his job to China. Overheard at a Romney fundraiser. Oh, no, they were more brutal than that. One of them said, what is a poor person? Pheasant under glass? No, dear, unpleasant under glass. Ooh. These are the things. Now, the, the point of these statements is that these people are saying what we wonder if they're actually saying at their meetings. When the rich get together, what do they talk about? I'll give you an example. What do you mean I can't have my face on Mount Rushmore? Sit down, Coke. We said it might take two elections. Overheard at a Romney fundraiser. Right. These are what we wonder what they're thinking, what they're saying. Right. right. And the right. horror right. of these statements is I am willing to bet while we're sitting here laughing at some of them, some of them might be more true than we ever really want to think. Salisbury, honey, I meant for you to, me, for you to buy me the university, not the castle. Uh, I guess another summer home won't hurt. Ay, So, well, here's, here's, here's something. That, uh, I mean, while we're talking about things that people don't really want to talk about, um, as I recall in one of our many, many conversations, um, one of your short stories, Dark Harvest. Um, oh, yeah, no one wants to talk about that. Well, I want to talk about it. No, no, I'm just saying um, people don't want to talk about that. I know, and that's why that's exactly why we're going to talk about it. Um, and so for those who have not heard about Dark Harvest, could you give us a, a, synop- a synopsis, just a brief one? Dark what Harvest happened? is a TED Talk. I don't know if you guys are familiar with TED, but TED is a company that, or it's a scientific gathering where a group of scientists, uh, engineers, brainy geek guys get together and talk about society and civilizations and how they think they can make the world better, what they think the world might be better doing, how we might improve the opportunities of the human race as a whole. It's very idealistic, very awesome. I love TED. If you haven't seen a TED Talk, go to YouTube, type TED Talks. And, man, you've got hours. Probably you could spend years listening to, to TED Talks and never hear the same one twice. 
So yeah. what I did was I wrote a story called Dark Harvest. And Dark Harvest takes the tone of a TED Talk, except that what it talks about is social media and how all-pervasive and all-consuming social media is in the world today and how people are putting all of their data onto the Internet. And you think, well, you know, the, the, the main statement always being said is privacy is dead. There is no such thing as privacy. Privacy is gone. We don't need it. And I've always laughed, and my response to that is people who say privacy is dead either make money from stupid people who don't know their privacy should be alive or don't have anything to lose because they have yet to make enough money to want it, for anyone to want to steal yet. So if you're rich, privacy is dead because you can hunt down people and kill them, and it's not a problem. If you're poor, you don't have anything to lose, so you have nothing to be private about. But if you're somewhere in between where you're not rich enough to lose anything and, not, and still above being too poor to care, you have a problem. You really want privacy. In Dark Harvest, we presume to look at the terrible art of human trafficking, the thing that everyone knows exists no one ever wants to talk about, but it makes for great movies because people remember those movies. Liam Nielsen was in one of those movies just recently. Everybody loved that movie. Oh, Liam, you were so awesome. It was about human trafficking. It wasn't about Liam Nielsen. So the idea of this story is that we talk about if you so put you, enough information that, that, that available be, out there on right. the Internet, I can right. find you. Right, right. Well, I and if I have sophisticated more, more, more. enough tools, I can find anyone. And so right. the story talks about the idea of human trafficking to order. Right. That someone could right. put a request in for a particular person, hair color, weight, eye color, and create a program to hunt down someone from all of the social media that's out there today and get an exact match of what they're looking for. And depending on where they live, the technology exists to find them, hunt them down, and snatch them off the street in eight hours or less. Jeez. Wow. Well, and I know that this technology exists. It exists today. Even though it was a science fiction story, it's really possible. It is possible, and, and well, yes, I'll tell you how possible, how possible it is. I was looking at Mashable a few weeks back, maybe a couple of months back. Um, apparently, there was some sort of application, some sort of app that used Foursquare to match up with possible women that men might be interested in meeting and dating. Well, the problem with that, of course, is that Foursquare is not a dating site. And, I mean, you might be minding your own business, you know, sitting in a cafe someplace, you know, eating a bagel, drinking your coffee, and some schlub shows up and decides that you should go out with him because he saw you on Foursquare and his little app told him that's where you're going to be sitting. And yes. I mean, and, and I'm on. I'm on Foursquare, and I still, and I'm like, I'm, I'm still very cautious about it because I'm very aware of the fact that people do stalk. I mean, just individuals. But what if you had an, an entire corporation that mm-hmm. decided we're going to stalk somebody who looks like this, sounds mm-hmm. like this, gets a particular description for somebody who wants to buy a human being. So yes, I read your See, story. You understand I, Dark Harvest perfectly. Ah, uh, yes, I do. And so the horror, I isn't it? Understand. Isn't it horrifying? I mean, for me, as I was writing it, I was horrified, but I couldn't stop. Just to show you right. where it was, I wrote that thing right. from front to back, one sitting, just, just, just going at it, visualizing it, and just doing it. It was horrifying, but I couldn't stop watching a train wreck. So. Tell me, why do you think people reacted so negatively to your story while at the same time flooding the flooding the gates to go see Taken? And apparently there's going to be a sequel to it. And at this point, I'm concluding it's not so much that people are interested in the trafficking. It's a star vehicle. It's, you no, know, no, no, no. Okay. It's not at all. You know why they like it? Wow. They like it because they like the show, the movie, because it shows people stomping the pardon my French stomping the shit out of human traffickers. That's really what it's about. Okay. It is not about the but human trafficking part. It's believable. Maybe I should yes. call it a star he's, he's believably angry. He's believably, he's believably angry. And he's that is what know. makes him work. Actor. 
because he does that. Right, as an actor, he effectively channels 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 that channels that rage. He's actually that's a very right. good actor. That's, that's right. He's yeah, very he's good actually. at channeling rage. He's very good at letting you know he's channeling that rage. He is not going to stand there and passively take this. And this is what people want to see in the world, albeit the people who want to show that rage or who right. want to right. be that rage filled are also the same people who will never address the actual issue of human trafficking. Because for them, it's something that happens to other people until it happens to you. Right. And that's the part that's sad to me, is because we could, if we were making a greater effort, do our part to make human trafficking less trafficking. But we're not doing that. We we are not doing that. We are not acknowledging where human trafficking comes from. We are not acknowledging what causes the taste for the dark side of the human human flesh. Because that's really what it's about. It's about control and domination, and it's a sickness in our society. It's a sickness that is perpetuated and promoted by people in power. Wow. It's not accidental. People think, oh, my God, it's an accident. Human trafficking, no one does that intentionally. Yes, they do. Let's, let's, let's well, remember what the oldest the middle passage was. The middle passage was human trafficking. That's exactly, that's exactly what it was. That's, that's right. exactly what it was. Right. You know, it's not like this is new. Human trafficking yeah, has been going on. It, the, the, we all know what the oldest profession is, right? Prostitution? Well, let me assure you, the second oldest profession is human trafficking. Right. That's right. how you got good prostitution. That's how you got to move around. That's how you you made your money, by trafficking in it. Once you knew it was profitable, you made money on it. And I was reading a bunch of essays and a bunch of uh, watching a bunch of films, and these guys were talking about it. it. It made more money than any other criminal enterprise they were engaged in. Could you see yourself uh, turning this into, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a screenplay? You know, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, you know when you brought up the – Movie taken, and I just kind of thought, wow. Well, you think people might be a little less um, less pissed off about this story if you know if we had a, a Liam Neeson playing playing that lead role, or would they even be would they be more trouble because the lead in your story is not innocent? No, he's not. That, that's the point of his existence. I took right. the point of view of a person who did not do the do the actual trafficking, but he enabled the traffickers. And so, right. aware of the horror, he was aware of what he did, but he was not getting his hands dirty. So for him, he still had some semblance of humanity, and that was the point I wanted to take. He knew he was a monster. But he wasn't the monster like the monsters in the room. The monsters in the room relished the poor creature as she was drugged into the room. They relished it. They breathed right. that, her suffering in right. like wine. He did not. That meant he still had some humanity. But not much. Not much. Right. So, in what way does that reflect us as it reflects on all of us because we're the we're we're all that man. We all are that same man. We are not doing what we could to make things better. We know that things so could he, be better. We know that we could do something better, but we're not doing it. So and so, in our own way, man, we're just as culpable as he is. Right. So he's the everyman of the 21st century. Yes. Oh well, then shoot. I guess we could put Liam Neeson in. He's good at he's good at that. He's good at playing you know playing the ordinary guy caught up in something. You know. Well, this guy is not ordinary. He's talented. He's just not strong-willed. He's just not willing to put himself out there. Right. He knows what right. he's doing is wrong. But most human traffickers know what they're doing is wrong. They just don't care. He still has a tiny, tiny bit of caring. And so, right. if I decided I wanted to to take that story a little further, I could see him turning. You know, I could see him taking himself into this to decide if he wants to, you know, to fight against it. You know, one of the best ways to fight the system is to be inside the system. Right. So he I might decide that that's the best way to solve the problem is by being there. Right. We've seen in Taken where, um, where the, you know, where the ex five, you know, pretends to be a pretends to be a buyer and, he, and he's watching and. He's 
at the point when I wrote it, my, my whole goal at the point was to excise that particular frustration. Um, I had been reading, I'd been doing some research, and I decided that when I was looking at this article on human trafficking, because there's a bunch of articles I referenced before I started writing, um, mm-hmm. that it, it just left me so, when I was done, I was just so, I wanted to scream. You know, you just have that primal scream just locked inside. It was one of those things that made me want to just scream at something. Did you need to take a bath afterwards? Because this, you know, what, what, what really startled me about the, the way that this story ended, it, it it looked like pretty much any other, you know, corporate presentation. It looked yes. like a TED presentation. Yeah, it, it did. It, it didn't feel. It, it, it didn't. It, it had that had that feel to it. Um, many of the stories that you write, in fact, have the potential to be full length novels. Um, are you working on a full-length novel right now? Yes, I have a full-length novel. As a matter of fact, I've got six of them. Uh, Insurrection is a space opera, and it's basically done. It's where the story, any story you see where we talk about the hegemony, there's a, a story in there called The Planet Traders, uh, where these aliens make a planet for humanity, because I, I blew up their planet. <laughs> I blew up their planet at the end of Hayward's Reach. <laughs> so they don't have a planet to go to, but uh, a few hundred years later in the hegemony, the uh, – uh, No Death Star, though, do you? Again? You don't use a Death Star, do you? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't blow it up like that. No, no, I just make it so that people can't live on it. Oh, no, okay. uh, just, just so we're on the same page, science, real science, uh, the science of blowing up planets, really quite difficult. Gravity is a son of a – you you can't blow up planets like they do in movies. You just can't do it. You might be able to shrink one into a black hole, but you certainly aren't going to be blowing one up. Not easily, not unless you've got something that makes a whole lot of antimatter. Planets are big. They're massive. I mean, incredibly massive. So there's no blowing them up. And it irks me when I watch science fiction movies where they blow up planets. It takes a thousandth of that energy to make a planet simply unlivable. If I'm a bad guy and I want to make a planet unlivable, I'm not going to blow it up. I just got to poison the sky. Matter of fact, I can drop a rock on it. I drop an asteroid the size of Texas on the unit, on the on Earth. I kill everything on the planet, and that's like energy free. I just go find myself a big asteroid, throw it at your planet, and kill everybody. I don't need a giant death ray. I mean, that's nice. It, it looks pretty, I guess, if you're into the, ooh, look at the pretty colors. But if I just want to kill everything on the planet, I drop a rock on you and I move on. Oh. I mean, I'm just saying, you know. Planet so rock. I've got Insurrection. Insurrection is a space <laughs> opera. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's got a black male protagonist. So by definition, that will already make it a problem for most people. Um, it's a black male protagonist. It's got a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-alien crew. Uh, it's got giant sweeping vistas, awesome space battles, uh, uh, unstoppable enemies, and other standard space tropes. But inside of those space tropes are a bunch of other smaller, more meaningful relationships that I work on uh, right, to right. make the story significant to me and to readers. And I think I think it's one of my favorite pieces. It's one of the first novels I've basically finished. I just have a couple of things to do to it. So it's already done. Would you like to see would you like to see more um black male, black female, Latino male, Latino female, Asian male, um a- Asian female, Native American. You mean words, somebody other people, than a white protagonist people. saving the day? Right. I'm not opposed to white protagonists, so all you people out there listening, don't get the idea, my God, he's a racist. Nope, I'm not opposed to it. It would just be right. nice to see a brother get to save the day more than Will, once and be someone other than Will Smith. Can a brother save the day and not be Will Smith? Can a brother or, be the know, lead hero in a story and come out on top? Does that brother have to be crippled? Because that's, that's one of my pet peeves in every kind of media. Wherever a brother is the main protagonist, he's got to be crippled. You remember Mantis, first brother to be a science fiction lead protagonist? The brother's crippled. He's in a wheelchair, so he makes an exoskeleton so he can move around. Why? Why does a brother have to be crippled? Remember Jordy LaForge, first brother to be on Star Trek, he blind. Right. He got to have a hair clip on his face so that a brother can be in the show because he can't right. be whole. And my thing with that is that every time I see 
a brother in science fiction, he's broken. If you look at DC Comics, you've got Cyborg. You know, first first time a brother's been on the Justice League in a long time after uh, who isn't sharing the crown of a previous role like uh, John Stewart. Don't get it wrong, John Stewart is awesome. He is my Green Lantern, but Hal Jordan is most fanboys' Green Lanterns. So right. when Cyborg shows up and he gets to be a member of the the Justice League, it's like. Awesome, except for the fact that he's completely crippled. He's got no legs, no arms, missing one eye. Most of his lower body does not work, so we know there's nothing else going on between his legs. This is what they want to sell you, the emasculated, minimized black man. He's going to be okay then. Superman gets to be studly and fully fledged and fully formed and awesome and neat and tidy, but nobody else gets to have all that. And so whenever I see black heroes in those lead roles, they're always diminished somehow. So I don't have that. My hero, he's tall, handsome, sexy, well-built, muscular. Okay, so he's got some android parts, but they're inside. The outside, he's all man, just the way we like him. And no, we do not have a novel where he spends his whole time in the sheets. Because I hate that. I hate that. I hate the idea that whenever a, a black hero, black protagonist, has got to show up, the only thing he's doing is having sex and kicking people's butts. Now, I don't mind that, brother. Have some sex, but it should not be all that happens the whole novel. Right, right, right. So and let's not even talk about that. what happens in the movie. Let's not even talk about what happens to, happens to black men in, in the movies. I mean... Generally speaking, they seem to be the you know the you know the cannon fodder. They're not you know they don't you know they get to be the cannon fodder. Uh, I mean TV tropes: the black guy dies first. Yes, we're no, you know I mean, and, in the series he's going to die. Yeah, we got that. I don't even we're going to skip over that because I'm sure plenty of other brothers have done that trope. I'm going to let that slide. What's my what are my other books? Uh, I've got the Tales of the New Earth where I've got an alien invasion and nobody knows what's going on and humans are going to fight each other or maybe they're not or maybe they're going to fight against the alien invasion. You can't be sure, but I love writing that right. stuff and I'm, I've got a whole bunch of stuff done there. I've got the Aspect right. Wars. I've got uh. I basically decided to tell a story that said, if all the religions you knew were true, no, 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 not just Christianity, because Christianity likes to think, we're all true, it's the best religion ever. What if I told you that every religion that has ever existed was real and true and happened simultaneously? Wow. What kind of world do you suppose you would have? Uh, You have a world with a lot going on and a lot of people having issues and... Prayer, the idea of praying to a deity, might actually be less appealing if he actually showed up. Right, 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 right. So, so uh, yeah. in my world, in the Aspect Wars, most humans <laughs> recognize that religion and deities exist, but they don't pray to them. They don't want them to answer. Because if a god answers your prayer, something bad usually happens, as it should. Right. It should be a bad thing to pray to a crazed deity and have him show up. Right. So, the aspect wars right. talks about religion, what it's about, why people do it, what happens if you actually got what you wanted when you prayed for it. Would that always be a good thing? Probably not. And what happens when people who are fanatical about religion, what, what, what happens when they are fanatical and their deity is fanatical? Oh, man. All bad stuff, all bad. But a fun story. I enjoy telling it. I get to resurrect deities that haven't been seen for five thousand years. Yeah, and um, I'm having a now great is time. Only here is only here for the food part of it. Yes, only here for the food is part of it. Right. I love this story. I mean, you've got you've got um, Persian goddesses. You've got Celtic fairies. You've yes, I got the whole king coop. You know, whole kitten caboodle and the and, and folks. For those of you who are listening, fairies are not nice. They're not <laughs> nice people. No, they aren't. And I don't no, know how they ever. No, no. The fae were quite terrible, and I write them the way I really think they were: cruel, unrepented, evil when they chose to be. At best, they were self-centered. At worst, maniacal, monstrous, as they should have been. They were powerful, and they were powerful during a time when man was weak. So, of course, they were cruel to men. And then when men got strong, they became bitter. 
and had to retreat to a parallel world where they never got to control the lives of men unless they could sneak back to Earth, as they're doing right now in the story. So it's there's, it's just I had a good time with it. I decided, you know, I don't care what other writers have done with the Fey. I don't care what other writers have done with any of these deities. These deities in my book are mine, and so they will do what I want them to do the way that I want them to do it. And if it doesn't appeal to people who are waiting for, you know, the standard werewolf trope or the standard vampire trope, I don't care. Matter of fact, I'm the the thing that tickles me the most about my series when I tell people about the Aspect Wars is there are no vampires here. Not in this story. No Spooky. No Spooky. No Twilight. None of that. None of that. And if you meet a vampire in my books, run. Run. Run like your life depends on it, because my vampires, it does. I don't do those warm, romantic vampires. No. They're monsters. That's the way I like them. I mean, even your angels. Fallen Angel, um, you have Fallen Angel, then you have um, a couple of your uh, Up City uh, stories uh, featuring featured angels. Your angels are terrifying, yes. absolutely terrifying. Well, uh, you know what? Another... I feel like this. If we're going to talk about mythology, I mean, because I have books on angels and all kind of religion in my house. And I, when I read these books and I read about how they describe angels, my God, they're terrifying. They're scary. They're, they were scary to me. They had six wings, six eyes, could change shape, alter the fort. They're like gods. So I decided I'd write them like that. And so I have my angels being able to split into multiple forms. I have them changing shape. I have them doing all kind of crazy things. I enjoyed the heck out of that stuff. I decided I would tell my own stories. Because when I read about these angels that are, I'm so cool, I'm walking down the street, and yes, I can see the souls of the dead. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's like... Really? You're a godlike angelic being and your job is to walk around scooping up the souls of the dead. Really? Right. That's what you do? That's a that's that sucks. You need a new union. What happened to awesome cosmic phenomenal power? Where'd that go? So I decided right. I didn't want any of those angels. So when we read about Mikhail and we will see Mikhail again, Mikhail is that broken angel, the last angel from Fallen Angel. Okay. Mikhail is a yes. piece of the Archangel Michael, but he's ah. broke. He's living on Earth, and he has no memory of what he is. I'm going to have so much fun with that. <laughs> yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, the, the, the you know the the, the, the the writing process. Uh, you, know, you know, I've had people ask me, well, what is you know what is Apple what is Apple futurism? And I, I I definitely think that you you would you would body that. I mean, there's no question about it. You know, the idea that we actually exist in the future, that we actually are, are part of that. Not only that, we actually exist as part of culture-making, mythology-making. And I see that for you, you know, the idea that, you know, myth-making has not ceased. Storytelling has not ceased. That there are more stories to tell. Um, that there are other stories besides you know, the the same old, you know, Stella's got her groove back, I'm going to write about, you know, uh, some sort of, you know, uh, rap star, you know, superstar, entertainment, basketball star. You people, your story with folks from all walks of life, you don't just write about black folk, you write about people of all colors, all sexualities, all genders, and there's more than two genders. Yes, um, in some cases, also, more, than, more than two genders, yes. I, I don't have a problem yes, with Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And so um, what is your what is your, 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 your process? You've talked about it a little bit, but what is your process? How, you do, know, how do you begin? So, sometimes a story is born... Just because I'm mad about something. That tends to be where my, a lot of the stories I write about, they come from just me seeing a thing that just doesn't make any sense and asking myself, mm-hmm. okay, in a world where you actually had, a, had anything that looked like sense, what would that look like? What would that be like? Um, so I have taken ideas that were, like Hub City is one of those ideas. Hub City is 
it's, it's basically an anime. Obviously, it is an anime because it talks about magic and science. Yes, there's magic. There's magic in Hub City, even though people think it's just space opera. I said, no, because Hub City is not really about the technology. The technology is important. Hub City is about the people who live in it and the things that people do and their relationships to each other, to technology, to magic, to their spirit, to how they see themselves in the universe, because that's really what's wrong with us as a people today. We have lost our way. We have decided that it is more important to make money, that it is more important to turn living things into dead things and sell them for profit, than it is to leave them where they are and let them do what they do. We just won't do it. We cannot help ourselves. We've been conditioned by a madness, by a mania to convert living things to dead things. And reproducing crazily without any question of whether we should or shouldn't, how we should or shouldn't, what we should be doing or shouldn't. We just we've 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 lost our place. There's a picture I have on uh, on one of my websites, and it shows this uh, backdrop, and there's a little tiny dot on the backdrop, and it's a picture from Voyager. And when I saw this picture, it said that dot is the sun. <laughs> From Voyager. Voyager is currently on the very edge of the Oort cloud. That's billions of miles, four billion miles from Earth. So when it looks back to see the sun, the sun is just a teeny weeny infinitesimal little dot. That's not the Earth, mind you. That's the sun. It gives me such a perspective on what we are and our relationship to each other and how we need to do better about that. So a lot of my stories come from questioning a relationship between who we are and what we could be, what we should be, what we should aspire to be. And in some cases, when I have aliens, a lot of times my aliens are basically us, asking a different question about what is human or what is not, or what a sentient thing, sentient creature, what decisions should or could it make. And the fact that we as humans, we don't even treat each other well, and we're all looking the same. What happens when E.T. shows up and he does not look like us? What if E.T. shows up and he looks like a giant cockroach? Oh, my God. He could be the sweetest, nicest cockroach. We could love him once we start talking to him. But when we see him, we're going to be completely and utterly freaked out. And there will always be people, even if they were sweet and wonderful and smelled like flowers, they would still look at them and go, those goddamn cockroaches. Because we're fear-driven. We're fear-motivated. We're driven by our fears, not by our joys, not by our best natures, but by our worst. So what a lot of times when I'm writing, what's driving me is trying to find our best nature. And sometimes I start by examining our worst and then work my way back either redeeming a person, redeeming a character, or showing a different point of view, or showing how, you know, someone who starts good and ends bad, you know, sometimes it's a slippery slope. You could start off with the best intentions and still find up in, find yourself in hell, because that's where the road to good intentions usually leads us. So my process varies from story to story, but I know when I was doing 30 stories in 30 days, my process was to take a segment of something, that, whatever it was that day or whatever it was I was thinking about, and write it. And I just sat down and I would bang a story out. And some of those stories were just awesome because they had no previous reference points. They had no previous books. They had no previous ideas. I examined the idea of using uh, organic creatures as weapons in a story called Paxiridia. If we could make living giant animals and they could be our friends and they could be our cars, would we turn these living weapons in, or living beings into weapons? Well, some of us would. But one man yeah. takes a stand against that. That's uh, You'll yeah. find that in, in Haywood's Reach. It's called Pax Ceridia, and uh, okay. you'll like it. It's one of those stories. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, my yeah. process varies. It depends on how I'm feeling, what I'm feeling, what I'm working on, what I'm thinking about, what I think is important to me. But I always try to find that place where we're at our best, not our worst. And that if we're talking about us at our worst, it's only because I want us to be better. Now, your latest post for Hub City, um, you talk about, um, you know, you talk about the, the latest, uh, the latest craze. You're talking about carelessness. Yes. Yeah, yes, I think that yes, was a little yes. disturbing for you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. But you know what? Um, 
um, I I uh, I want to see more. I want to see more of it because I it, it it was one of those stories where it was and it wasn't a story. Um, I want to see more. You know what does it, because it, it it looks like where we where we're at right now. It People is are trying to yeah. Well, folks are still trying to figure out well, what what is this? Well, you know you know you're saying well it's, it's got to be bad salt, but some of these people who are committing uh, committing murders and, and doing some really awful things, some of these people were not on bath salt. There was a case in Maryland, a student who he murdered. Killed his neighbor, his, his roommate, and ate him, yes. But you realize yeah. that all the people that are in my story, all the people in that story, they all came from real news articles. Yeah, I noticed that. I noticed yeah, they, they were all that. real news articles. So... I wrote it talking about the idea that I think people are I think people are losing it. I think we're losing our grip. I think we are not just losing what's important, we're losing ourselves. And this yeah. and this story, this this seed of Hub City, because it's part of Hub City, it's part of the you know, when you say how did we get here? This is how. Hub City is this story is an example of how we got to where we end up in Hub City later. Uh, one of the reasons that they don't allow advertising, for example. Hub City has no advertising. People do not advertise. What you cannot promote when you go somewhere does not get promoted. Because it was discovered that our, our, the people who were running Madison Avenue were using media to control the minds of people. There are scientists who were able to prove that advertisements were literally a form of mental programming, and it ultimately led to the psychotic... So Hub City does not allow it. Again? You you cut off for a minute, so said it again. You said that that advertising led to programming. Yes, advertising led to programming. And that the programming of human beings uh, was being done. So unscrupulous humans were using advertisements to program human beings. So, well, that's and that's actually a reality. I'm, I'm thinking about the, um, the 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 controversy with Seventeen magazine. Apparently, uh, a young woman uh, decided to to protest it and and decided to get a um, you know a, a, get a petition going to uh, pressure Seventeen Magazine to start using young women young and, and teenage girls who actually have, you know, uh, real bodies and stop, and, and stop using the, you know, the Photoshop to right. make them all look like they, they're starved. Right. And see, so in Hub City. Yeah, I mean, according, according, to, according to Madison Avenue, that's the idea of looking like you're starved. Right, and we've been doing this kind of social engineering, manipulating people's psyche for decades. Since since the 40s, it's been being done. So my whole thing is I address it by saying there is no advertising because humans can't be trusted not to use what I call the open source programming, the open source programmability of the human mind. Human, The human mind is vulnerable, and people who work Madison Avenue have spent decades mastering the craft of manipulating messages so that they can convince you to buy something you don't need at will. Right. They literally can do it at will. People are convinced. They, are, they don't even realize they're making decisions. They're not even conscious that they're not making these decisions. So one of the things that Hub City says is we don't allow advertising of any kind. You can talk about right. your product, and if your rhetoric is great, good. But beyond that, that's as good as it gets. People will buy your you product know, because they like it or they don't. Right, right. And that's all exactly. there is to it. There will be no people crafting the message. There will be no people right. creating the rhetoric. And that actually we, uh, Hub City, has a program teaching all the things that our civilization does not. It teaches critical thinking. It teaches analysis right. so that you aren't right. subject to being manipulated through that way. So when people leave Hub City and they go to any of the old world cities that still exist, because there aren't that many anymore, they're appalled at the complete manipulations of their psyche. They're appalled at how these people have been led and how sheep-like they are. Because in Hub City, everybody's healthy. They're eating natural food. 
They're living natural lives. They're working every day. They're living joyful lives. They're not living quiet lives of desperation. So when Hub City people go to old world cities, they're traumatized. Because the people right. in, in modern cities, they're beat down, they're starving, they're hungry, they're desperate for a life that has some form of enrichment. They're, you know, people in the city get together every day. Gotta break, yeah, gotta break in. We're, we're, we're like literally like 20 seconds. So we're gonna, I gotta end it. I hate this. Go ahead, girl, do your Okay, so give us a, a real quick uh, plug. You can go find me on hubcityblues.wordpress.com. I can find me on the Internet anywhere. Just type my name. That is T-H-A-D-D-E-U-S, Howes, H-O-W-Z-E, and I'll show up. I write all kind of things, and I'm in all kind of places. Find me and enjoy. All right. All right. Excellent. Excellent. This has been, wow, this is, you know, this has been a, a, a great, great episode. We are going to do this again. Uh, no question about this. Uh, you know, there's so many things that we do have to talk about. We didn't even get to talk about uh, you know, the article that's coming out tomorrow about the Internet. So, um, you know, we're definitely going to do this um, probably sometime in August, okay? You so, let me know. Um, I'll be there. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for um, having me. This has been a one. Yo, oh, thank you. All right, guys. Have a great evening. Um, enjoy the vlog. And next week, um, Ariel Warren from Corset Magazine. Um, and coming up, we're also going to be having other folks, um, Alondra Nelson, uh, uh, Professor Kelly, um, a few other folks. Um, and so this show is really taking off. If you haven't thought about following um, At The Edge, please do that. Please do that. Um, Go, just go right to um, the show page and click on follow. Um, and don't forget to um, follow me on Twitter and follow me on my blog, um, Afrofuturism Scholar, and also on WordPress. Good night, folks, and good night, Thaddeus. Thank you. Good night. Good night. <laughs>